from KHOL, this is Jackson Unpacked. Our podcast on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. I'm news director, Tyler Pratt. Coming up on today's show, a local artist is documenting the issues Jackson's working class faces in the midst of the region's growing housing crisis. At any point next year, my landlord can say I'm selling and then I am out and I don't know what's going to happen. A new exhibit showcases the lives of community members struggling to keep a roof over their heads. And later, we air another conversation in our One Small Step series, which brings Jackson Hole locals with different beliefs and backgrounds together to talk and discover common ground. I want a government that is way more empathetic and like less driven by capitalism. And I know that's like super idealistic, but like no, I think that's, that's fair. I think we all I want, <laughs> and like that. Yeah, I'm like I'm gonna keep pushing for that. These stories and more coming up on Jackson Unpacked. Thanks for joining us today. Jackson's housing crisis may be pushing out the working class. That's the subject of a new multimedia exhibit on display right now at the Teton County Library. The project, A Disappearing Home, documents the lives of dozens of residents powering our community, from restaurant servers to teachers, all grappling with similar housing stresses. The artist behind the exhibit, Lina Guayado-Garcia, was born and raised in Puerto Rico and has lived in the Jackson Hole region for a decade. She spent the past several years collecting photos and interviews showcasing people's struggles to make ends meet as the price of housing continues to soar. K-12's Hannah Mersbach got a tour of the exhibit and sat down with Guayado Garcia to discuss the project and what she's learned from documenting the community. Lena Goyado Garcia walks clockwise around the exhibit, stopping in front of a glossy collection of photos on the library walls. We're looking at Edith and Gemma. She says there are two people featured in this exhibit and that they've been in the region for over two decades. They have four children, three sons and one daughter. They've moved four times in four years. Even one time they ended up sleeping in just a relative's couch because that's all they can find. Adith and Kema, who didn't share their last name for privacy reasons, work at a fast food restaurant in town. One photo shows the family serving concessions at a Teton County Fair food booth where they supplement their income in the summer, working 12-hour days. And the couple commutes nearly an hour every day from Alpine because that's where they could find housing. And have to wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning and go to bed at 10 o'clock at night. So the health issues that are coming through with this crisis are very big. And Goyado Garcia says those aren't the only negative effects of the housing crisis. She says living in chronic instability makes it hard to raise kids and put down roots. It affects residents' education and ability to move up in the world. And then there's another story. Walking around the exhibit, she points to other families and individuals, saying they all have different perspectives. From my house got sold to I have moved 11 times in eight years, and I just lost my housing again, and I'm done, and I'm leaving. And in her 10 years in Jackson, Goyado Garcia says she's only seen the problem get worse. We sat down in the library's Wonder Institute recording studio to talk more about what inspired the project. 
when COVID-19 started. And as an educator, I was seeing the conditions where students were studying because of the housing crisis and how the housing crisis was forcing many families, since they weren't able to be in school, to study in bathrooms and dressers and in circumstances that are really just detrimental to the student. And I started asking if I could just take photos. My first photo was in May 2020. And that kept me actually going through COVID. And from there, I just started noticing that many families, no matter their career, no matter their just cultural background, everyone was struggling with housing in some way, shape, or form. And certain words kept popping up, like instability and uncertainty and space. And just those things just really start resonating and creating this um, unified story of how the working class of Jackson is just really struggling and is trying to make it work because of how much they love where they live. Tell me about your own housing journey. How, how did that play into this project? Um, it very much did. I was one of the fortunate ones that when I moved here, I found an apartment, a $575 rent a month, and I lived there for four years. And then my boyfriend and I decided to move in, and we found this apartment in town, and we signed a year lease. We moved in. We were enjoying our new space, and about a month after moving in, we were told that we had to leave in 30 days because it was being sold. And that threw us in a complete frenzy of, oh my God, where are we going to live? Where are we going to stay? Like rent at that point, this was four years ago, um, rent was starting to really climb. And by the luck of the draw, I saw an apartment on a newspaper and I was able to find a place where I live now. I had to go to interviews. It was an extensive process, but we secured housing. And every year, our rent goes up. Last year, it went up drastically. And I was paying over half of my income in rent. That just really put a really gigantic financial struggle on my personal life, on my mental health. And I realized that I was one of many, that I wasn't the only one, and that mine was actually low. You know, you started this project three years ago at the start of the pandemic, and obviously Jackson has always been an expensive place to live, but it's even worse now. How did you see things change during that time? It's been really eye-opening, jaw-dropping at some points. And I understand that change happens and change is good, but sometimes change can happen while you're not protecting what is valuable and what is important. I have seen a lot of families have to move and being kicked out of their home. The change has been very dramatic and also, I can say, negative in many aspects, especially from the housing perspective. You really try to showcase a variety of perspectives. You have both families, individuals. It looks like you have people of all different kinds of descents, different ages. And you know, the exhibit itself also is in English and Spanish. Tell me about how that idea of diversity and making this accessible played into your work. That was my main goal. Um, My main goal was to show that the housing crisis is not an issue 
that just focuses on the Latino community. I wanted to show that this is an issue that happens to all of us. And no matter our job, no matter if you work in a nonprofit, you work in a restaurant, you work in a beauty salon, you work anywhere in Jackson, we all struggle in some way or in another, especially if we're part of the working class. And I just really want it also the exhibit not be a barrier for anyone. That is why the location was crucial of being the library, being a space where everyone walks in for free and where there's transportation to go. And also that the language of the exhibit wasn't a barrier because as a Latina myself, that was a priority that I wanted to have people be able to read it in their own language. And that's also why I did not translate the interviews. The interviews are in their own language because I felt if I was translating them, I was changing their voice. And coming out of being on this project for three years, how are you feeling yourself about the housing crisis? You know, a lot of people feel just despair over what's happening here, hopeless. Is there anything that gives you hope? I very much join the masses and the thinking that it is out of my control, that I can do all I can do in terms of as a tenant and that I can make my voice be heard. But at any point next year, my landlord can say, I'm selling. And then I am out and I don't know what's going to happen because finding an apartment that is, or a house that is less than $3,000 a month is very rare right now. And that is just a reality that we all face. But in terms of the issue itself, I think what does help and what does keep me in this project and continuing to choose to do it is that I think there's a lot of power in the collective voice and that if we can get together and do the action steps and actually fill the room of a town council instead of having just like the same five voices or 10 voices, I think that does make a difference and that does make it heard. And that's what I hope the exhibit and this project continues to do is just kind of be that presence where it needs to be. It's just like this ever-presence of, hey, don't forget about us. You're listening to Lina Goyado-Garcia, the photographer behind the exhibit, A Disappearing Home at the Teton County Library. Here's an excerpt from one of Goyado-Garcia's interviews with Fio Lazarte, a third grade teacher at Munger Mountain Elementary. What is or what has been your hardest challenge within your living circumstances while you've been living here? That any minute you can get kicked out. That I have no weight or say in the matter. That any minute your rent will increase. My rent just increased. I found out last week. I understand that is the nature of how the world works. However, my salary is not increasing at the same rate as my rent is increasing. And there's a huge gap there. I am really grateful for the place that I have. And I'm really grateful that I can sign a lease that will protect me in a way. But at the end of the day, I know that I have no control in the matter of whether or when my rent is going to increase. And rent is money that goes away rather than a mortgage, money that you are paying for a piece of property that you own that is yours. And I know that now as a single woman, 
I will not be able to get in the market because, I mean, an affordable came out last week and it was within my range of what I can afford, but minimum occupancy is two people. So I will never be able to get in. And I have accepted that. And it's hard because I've been here for 16 years. And sometimes I wonder if I did not make the right moves because I have nothing under my name. That's hard because I love this community so much. But then I'm like, do you love it enough to really settle and put roots and make it really happen? And I just don't know if I can from the housing standpoint because I don't know if I can do that on my own. And I would like to do that on my own. I take a lot of pride in the fact that I am able to accomplish a lot of things by myself. But on the housing part, I don't know if I can. That's Peruvian-American Jackson resident Fiu Lazarte speaking with local artist Lina Cuellar-Garcia as part of a new art installation called A Disappearing Home, showcasing the lives of working-class community members dealing with the region's housing crisis. The multimedia exhibit will be on display at the Teton County Library through the middle of November, and Cuellar-Garcia says she aims to turn her photographs and interviews into a book down the line. This is KHOL, Jackson Hole Community Radio. If you're just joining us, you're tuned to Jackson Unpacked from KHOL, where we showcase reporting and interviews on news, music, and culture in Jackson Hole and around the Mountain West. New episodes of Jackson Unpacked drop every other Friday wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Jackson Unpacked comes from 122 Resource Center, guiding members of our community towards stability and growth by providing financial assistance, food access, emergency resources, financial education, and economic independence. That's what we're here for. More information at 122jh.org. You're listening to a performance from singer-songwriter Jordan Smith inside the KHOL studios. He's part of the Wyo Folk Project, which is helmed by Jackson-area musician Aaron Davis and features songs from 14 Wyoming singer-songwriters. Every track was recorded for the album at Davis's studio in Hoback, the project's main goal was to serve as a lasting snapshot of Wyoming's current musical footprint. You can hear KHOL in-studio interviews and performances with Jordan Smith and some of the artists featured on the Wyo Folk Project over at 891KHOL.org. Jackson Unpacked is generously sponsored by the Snake River Sporting Club. At nearly 1,000 acres, this private western community accesses the Snake River and Bridger-Teton National Forest. Not to mention a golf course, equestrian center, and fully functioning ranch. More information about excursions, amenities, and lifestyle at snakeriversportingclub.com. You 
you can leave them, they can stay. Cause I found a piece here rolling down a river somewhere between a back row center and a small town. Thanks for tuning in to KHOL. I'm Tyler Pratt. Wildlife managers across the West have been stocking high alpine lakes with fish for decades, mostly so anglers have something to catch. And as the Mountain West News Bureau's Will Walkie reports, new research is looking into how that history changed the Rocky Mountain environment and the genetics of the fish themselves. It's just after sunrise at the Wind River Mountain Range, and I'm quickly realizing summer is over. There's frost on the tips of trees. Lots of cars in the parking lot and cold people. My mission today, catch a trout deep in the wilderness. I hike about eight miles in and reach a long skinny blue lake above 10,000 feet. I passed maybe five people on the way. Just put my rod together and I'm gonna cast out a little bit. I'm gonna be trying a bunch of different flies today until one works. It takes some trial and error, but finally I find a spot where I see fish. I cast out a yellow foam grasshopper. All right, come on, baby. Watch it float down a small current, and then... Yes! He's got it. I reel in an 8-inch cutthroat trout with a pronounced rainbow stripe, red around its throat, and brown spots. That is a beautiful, beautiful fish. It's this backcountry catch-and-release experience that got me hooked on the sport when I first moved to Wyoming, and one that enthralls a lot of Western anglers. That includes Jen Brown, a university professor who wrote a book on the history of fly fishing in the region. We think of the West and fly fishing in the West as this very pristine activity, one that is out in the wilderness and untouched by humans, where people go find themselves out in nature. But those fisheries and those trout only exist through widespread manipulation of the environment. She says most people aren't aware of how Alpine Lakes first got fish. Individuals, sporting clubs, and government officials stocked them starting in the 1800s. In the winds, there weren't any native trout before humans got there. Let's introduce fish. It's a nice, like, backcountry survival food. They're pretty easy to catch, and um, they, it brings sport. At the start, people would carry milk cans full of fish on their backs or on horses. Today, video shows fish and game workers filling cans with minnows from a hatchery and dumping them out of vehicles, or in some cases, helicopters. States in our region stock tens of millions of fish into rivers and lakes this way every year. And that manipulation has created some interesting consequences. If you look at them under the microscope, you see all kinds of little, little structures. Katie Wagner is showing me jars full of fish at her lab at the University of Wyoming. It's a little messy, so it's good as audio. She was part of a research team that looked into how lakes and the winds have changed since humans introduced fish there. It's an extreme environment where water is iced over for more than half of the year. So it's hard for species to survive. And how is it that that's feeding back onto the fish themselves? How is that impacting their own resource um, and their survival in these environments? What the team found was a case of rapid evolution in just a few decades. The changes are most obvious when looking at gill rakers, that's the trout's filter for small prey. The more they have, the easier it is to eat. What we found is that in populations that were stocked 
50 or 100 years ago, we have more gill rakers than in populations that uh, were stocked recently or that we look at from the hatchery. Wagner says this is significant because most people think evolution takes thousands or millions of years. The idea of putting fish into these really extreme and novel environments and watching them change over the course of a human lifetime is an exciting finding. Researchers say there's a hopeful angle too, that no matter how much humans change our environment, life will maybe be able to find a way to survive even in extreme circumstances. And that's something anyone that visits the woods can appreciate. For Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Will Walkie in the Wind River Range. You're tuned to Jackson Unpacked. Before we go today, we want to share another One Small Step conversation as part of a collaboration between Jackson Hole Community Radio and StoryCorps. Here's KHOL's Executive Director, Emily Cohen. KHOL continues with our StoryCorps initiative to connect Jackson Hole locals for one-on-one -on -one conversations. One Small Step brings people with different beliefs and backgrounds to talk and discover common ground. We close with a discussion between two 20-somethings, 25-year-old Emma Leiter and 24-year-old Tony Walsh. Both women grew up Catholic, but with different social and political ideologies. Leiter pushed back on her conservative upbringing and now identifies as liberal. And Walsh, who is also the partner of a K-12 staff member, says she now leans conservative after being raised in a liberal community. Here is a portion of their recent conversation. When I was um, getting into this conversation was yeah. the key difference between liberals and conservatives is not right and wrong. It's big picture and small picture mm. you guys on your and like not you guys <laughs> like just liberals in general or you know left-wing people in general um i tend to find they look at one person's hurt and they want to fix it so bad and i think that that is like so valuable and that's what humans should do mm. like we should love each other and we should fix it um, but the one person's or mul you know yeah. multiple people hurt doesn't apply to the scale of a government I think that's the key difference. Neither of us are right or wrong. We're just looking from two different mm. sides of it. Both people are coming from a place of love where we take the whole and try to apply it to the one and you guys take the one and try to apply it to the whole. Mm. And I could be wrong. This is just what I've observed mm -hmm. in my time, especially like going from one side of the aisle to the other. Yeah, it's interesting to hear like your perspective on just like the whole like liberal versus conservative. And like I, I get where you're coming from and I also feel like I I don't know I think like I can't I used to I worked in immigration legal aid for a long time and I'm like I can't watch people die at the border and not want to do anything like I'm like the government totally. needs to step up and or like I don't know like it well that's like a human just, response it means your like empathy is working <laughs> like, yeah that's yeah the thing, and like I governments just, don't I, run on empathy I think is what's really hard for the average yeah. human to accept is like dude like sucks and we can't always fix it all and I'm not saying that's right I'm saying mm. you're very real for feeling those things and it's also like yeah it's pretty normal I, yeah. that a government I mean, doesn't I have I all the push back against that and say like I want a government that is way more empathetic and like less driven by capitalism and I know that's like super idealistic but like no I that's think that's fair I think we all I want that. and like that yeah I'm like I'm gonna keep pushing for that because I, I feel like I can't mm -hmm. um in good conscience like not want that yeah. emma tell me about a moment in 
our history that you lived through that had a big influence on you? What did it teach you? I mean, the one that comes to mind is very political, but it's like when Trump was elected in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, I have very clear memories of that day. I was a freshman in college, um, went to a liberal arts school, very liberal student body. Like, it was my freshman fall. I, like, had just entered this space where I was like, oh, my God, like, I am no longer this, like, I don't know, gray duck that, like, sticks <laughs> out. Like, I'm like, okay, whoa. Like, and also people, I don't know, it was just, like, this new way of thinking, and I was like, whoa, like, I can, yeah, kind of be how I want to be. And mm-hmm. But um, I remember going to, like, a watch party in, like, the school's student center or whatever, and everyone was, like, kind of excited. Like, I was, like, I, I voted in that election. I voted for Hillary. I wasn't, like, jazzed about mm-hmm. her, but I was, like, Trump scares me and just the way he talked about when, yeah, just all yeah. the things. And I just remember when he was elected being, like, so shocked and, like, everyone was crying and, like, really upset. And I remember, like, the next day, like, my um, school's reaction was, like, very mournful. Like, some professors, like, canceled <laughs> class. And, like, one of my professors, like, wore all black. And, like, we had, like, a rally where it was, like, everyone just stood around crying. And I was, like, this is so crazy. And I remember texting my sister, who was, like, in my hometown at high school. And she was, like, oh, my God, it's, like, a party here. Like, and she was, like, people are, like, wearing Trump flags. Like, it's, like, there was, like, a truck rally around the school. Like, it was, like, I was, like, holy shit. Like, these are two, like, so opposite worlds. And, like, I had so many conversations with friends at college who were, like, I just don't understand how he got elected. Like, I don't know a single person that voted for him. And I was, like, well, I do. Like, Mm. like, literally everyone I know at home voted for him. And it was just, like, this time where I was, like, oh, my God. I'm, like, in two different worlds that are so disconnected recognizing like this is a bubble and it's like not always great because Mm -hmm. then like we're not having conversations with people who think differently than us and I think that can be really really dangerous totally um yeah that's so yeah yeah it's funny because right I was also a freshman in college when that happened and at the time I was like still living in my hometown with my parents so I was uh-huh. still like in that bubble totally. and so I had the exact same reaction as you I was like mm. so I've also voted for Hillary uh. and I do remember that feeling of like oh my gosh this is like an irreparable shift totally something that yeah. like I can't even fathom um do you have like a specific moment I know you just talked about that moment but yeah do you want to talk about a different moment in history yes COVID slash the BLM riots and being yeah. in California that was like a huge thing with the totally. riots yeah. um, and just COVID in general like with the mandates and everything I to see like the government just being like not very understanding and as someone who has a disability like I could not get the vaccine it was not worth me possibly like destroying my health and yeah. I know that that's just a guess but I'm not willing to take that guess I have yeah. no problem with people who took the vaccine as long as they were making a decision that was right for their body mm. and not because someone was telling them to yeah and I made a decision that was right for my body because my disability is a genetic thing and with RNA like I was just really scared and people like <laughs> treated me like a leper like people mm. were super super nasty to me and that whole moment in history was really pivotal for me because I was like wow people can just turn on you like, this is yeah. insane and for yeah. choices that I was making about my personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I am not a loud mouth. Like, I don't talk about this with people. Yeah. Like, this is, like, private. Yeah. Um, so that was a huge deal for me. And I think it shaped a lot about not just political views like that. I think it's pretty obvious given I'm sitting on the side of the table that I think you can assume. Um but like just how I view my fellow man in this country in this time and also yeah. like how I conduct myself, it just changed everything about me. 100%. Mm. It was like wild. <laughs> like- yeah. That was Jackson Hole Locals Tony Walsh and Emma Leiter during a One Small Step conversation. 
a nationwide initiative from StoryCorps and KHOL that aims to mend political divisions one conversation at a time. These conversations are happening now through the end of the year and being produced here in Jackson by Allison Sperry. StoryCorps' One Small Step and the radio station hubs are made possible by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. We are hosting a free public listening event on the 1st of November at the Center for the Arts. For more information and to sign up, visit 891khol.org. That's it today on Jackson Unpacked. Original music for the show is performed by the local band Strumbucket. I'm Tyler Pratt, and this is KHOL Jackson. Jackson.